welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites us back. My name is Bill. This is episode 84. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody. Hope everyone is doing well. Here's a question for you. This is sort of like the verbal version of click here to find out if you're old. Uh, sort of clickbaity things on social media. Here's how you know you're getting old. As I was recording today, I was sitting on the floor to kind of test out the game that we're playing today, to record some audio, to look up some things on the internets, all of that. When it came time to record the show proper, however, my body said, you know what, you have chairs, maybe you could sit in a chair. So that's what I'm doing, and my body is saying, thanks, that is how you know you're getting old. All right, so what's new, everybody? We got a little bit of feedback about our Phoenix episode from Sean. Sean, of course, hosts Pie Factory and the Atari 2600 Homebrew Podcast. Uh, hi, Sean. How you doing? He, in that episode, in this very segment of that episode, sort of the opening uh, news and thoughts of the day, I commented how I would really like to see an Atari-type homebrew based on the Sharknado movie series. Sharknado, of course, is the Sci-Fi Channel's uh, now five episode strong series of movies about sharks getting uh, swept up in tornadoes and causing mayhem by throwing uh, sharks at people across the country uh, or the world in the latest movie. It's very much a tongue-in-cheek, intentionally schlocky, um, just spectacle uh, full of you know, sort of B and C list celebrities. It's just a fun, goofy series of movies. So he sent me this link to the Atari Age forums, and there's a guy on there. It, this is older. This is from 2014, I guess. And he has a mock-up of a shark, what a Sharknado, the, the, the art for a Sharknado cart might look like. Pull it up here and do it justice. Well, I thought... That's like a poster of the, the original Sharknado movie. Anyway, this guy, uh, Neo Tokyo 2001, uh, posted on August 9th, 2014, For years I've been working with Atari 2600 programmers on games made to be autographed by cast members of various horror and sci-fi movies. Games have been made for Strange Land, Army of Darkness, Phantasm, Nightmare on Elm Street, Dawn of the Dead, Ghost Hunters, Elvira, and several others. It's that time of year again in October. This was 2014. He was going to be meeting D. Walls from E.T., Michael Rucker from The Walking Dead, another bunch of people from The Walking Dead, a bunch of other people we don't care about right now. And then he invites people to make a game for any system for one of the guests and then send him the details. Um, you keep the rights to the games. And I guess he makes this guy would make the cartridges and get the, uh, the actor to sign the cartridge. He, oh, okay, and then he posted again on August 14th, 2014, and Tara Reid was added as a guest at this uh, at this event. Tara Reid is one of the stars of the Sharknado movie series. So then he invites somebody to make a Sharknado game. Somebody responds uh, on August 21st, 2014, wondering if Tara Reid would be offended by a game called Terrified. But there are no responses saying that someone actually made a Sharknado game. So I guess my quest continues. Uh, I thought some, he had done a mock-up of some art, but I guess that was just the poster for the movie. So, like I say, my search continues. Sharknado homebrew people get on that. Sean also commented 
by the way, I agree with your suspicion about Igor's alleged world record. I had also commented when I was talking about that week's game, Phoenix, kind of going through the Wikipedia entry about the game, and it had, this was like the 13th or 14th of August whenever I recorded this, and there was an entry claiming that it had just been posted on August 10th that this guy had set the world record for the score. I don't remember what the score was. I could look it up right now, but I guess I'm lazy. Uh, go back and listen to the Phoenix episode. But it was odd. The, the timing was odd. He, The entry on Wikipedia said he had achieved this high score like 30 years ago, but it had just, oddly enough, posted it on like August 10th of this year, 2017. So Sean did a little research. The Wikipedia entry uh, was the only thing that he could find about it, and he notes that there's no source cited for the detail, and the latest date in the list of references is later is late last year. Generally, I use Twin Galaxies for references. Generally, I use Twin Galaxies for references as it's considered to be the official World Record database. Although there are factions of gamers who get sometimes literally violent with their hatred for Twin Galaxies, and if I recall correctly, either Richie Knuckles or John McAllister holds the arcade World Record for Phoenix. Didn't get a look at the Atari 2600 entry though. I, I know it's shocking to think that Wikipedia might not have the most accurate information. Shocking, I know. This week's episode of Atari Byte sponsored by Wikipedia. But I would like to think that Igor, if that is your real name, would be honest about a thing so vital to national security as achieving the world record in Phoenix. Ah, uh, well, the thing you have to learn about being an adult is that sometimes you're going to be disillusioned. So thanks for trying to look into that for me, Sean. If anybody else has any more information about this, let me know. When I posted the entry about the Joust episode that just dropped today, the day I'm recording this episode, episode 83, Joust has dropped. In my show notes, I make a reference to Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and David Miller on Facebook, hi David, is happy to jump in with his own Holy Grail quote from Patsy. It's only a model. If you haven't seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you have no idea what that means. It sounds stupid to you. Uh, all I can say is go watch the movie. Thanks for the shout-out, David. I hope you enjoy the episode. What else is going on? Last night, I watched, I think it was called Raiders. I think that's actually the name of the documentary. Raiders! Exclamation point. A lot of you guys have probably seen this. I think the documentary came out maybe in 2015 or 16. It's about this group of kids who, back in 1982, and they were like 11, some of them were 11, some were 12, they had seen Raiders of the Lost Ark in the theater and were so impressed that they got a hold of uh, a good camera because one of their dads owned a TV station and they had very little parental supervision. He even acknowledged in the documentary by some of the parents themselves. And they embarked on a shot-for-shot remake of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark using uh, themselves as actors and, and anyone they could recruit to be an actor in the film. Uh, they found their own you know, props and did their own special effects and... And they worked on this thing for seven years, all through their teen years. And one of the fun parts was they would shoot the scenes, like you do with most movies, out of order. So you might have a scene where uh, Indy is 11, and then in the next scene he's 15, and the next scene he's 12, and then he's 18 in the next scene. And they filmed the whole movie uh, shot for shot, except for one scene. There was one scene that they couldn't, they could never get done. It's the scene where India is fighting the huge bald Nazi guy uh, on the airplane. 
and there's a big explosion and the guy gets chopped up in the propeller and, and that whole sequence and they could never do it as uh, as kids so now as adults you know probably roughly my age 30 years later they get this wild idea that let's get some money together and go film that last scene so it's the documentary follows them as they you know go through the process of trying to raise the money and getting the time off work because they're all adults with responsibilities now and families and things and talks a little bit about you know goes back and shows some some clips of them making this movie as kids and talking about you know honestly what a nightmare that was and you know sort of uh, the three main guys all had personal problems they didn't necessarily have the greatest childhoods and uh and some of them went on to have kind of serious problems as adults too and but they've all come together to finish what they started as kids and it's just very kind of touching and it really speaks to the uh, the drive of creativity. Sometimes the creative impulse is so strong that you just got to do a thing no matter what. Uh, one of the guys, as an adult now, to, to go and do this, take the vacation time to go do this movie, this one scene for this movie that they're never going to make any money from, almost you know, risks losing his job just to just to finish this quest. So it, it's really interesting. If you haven't seen the documentary, go find it on Netflix. You won't be disappointed. What else is going on? There's a trial going on in federal court right now in Texas. This thing's been going on for a while. It's a $144 million lawsuit against Nintendo of America Incorporated for alleged infringement of iLife Technology, Inc.'s patent for motion detection technology, which they invented to detect falls by the elderly. I don't know this for sure, but I'm guessing this is like the uh, the I've fallen and I can't get up thing. Uh, some sort of technology to, to help detect when, when an elderly person falls down. And they're claiming that Nintendo stole this technology uh, to use for their, uh, I'm guessing, for like their Wii you know, motion sensor things. Um, so that's going on right now. Uh, if you're into legal stuff, if you're a Nintendo fan, you may want to follow that. I don't really have a dog in the fight. I don't really know who's right in this little suit. So uh, little suit, this, this little $144 million suit. I do kind of hope if Nintendo loses, not saying they should, but if they do, that somehow that translates into some money for me, since I've owned a Nintendo and, and a Wii in my life. So, you know, fingers crossed. All right, well, let's get on with it. Without further ado, here is this week's game. Solaris from Atari, 1986. We're getting into the end times for Atari at this point. This is a, a unusually late era 2600 game. You can tell it's late era in the sense that it looks more advanced the graphics are brighter and sharper and it's clearly a more um, more advanced game than you got in 1980 for obvious reasons so it's got that going for it sorry i had to pause here for a second to answer a text from my wife talk amongst yourselves all right i'm back well, let's find out how you play this game solaris which is not a game that you just pick up and play like frogger or something so what do we have here Oh, we have a story. Sweet. The Xylons are back. Those spaceway sneaks. Villains of Venus. Saturnian scoundrels. Let's get ready to rumble. It doesn't actually say that, but I was kind of felt like that's where it was headed. We're told they're swarming through the galaxy in huge forces, attempting another takeover. They've got to go, and we need you to go get them. But it's a hush-hush mission. If the Xylons guess you're onto them, you're a goner. So the official report says you're out to find the lost planet Solaris and rescue the 
Atari and Federation pioneers stranded there. But if the Xylons reach Solaris before you do, they'll destroy it. You've got to hyperwarp from quadrant to quadrant, facing vicious attachers such as the co egg the Kogalan, such as the Kogalan Star Pirates, Planet Destroyers, and Cobra Fleets. But don't worry, your fighter, the Star Cruiser, is specially outfitted with a galactic scanner and plenty of photon torpedoes. We're just going to go ahead and assume that they didn't steal a trademarked concept from Star Trek with the photon torpedo. Also, Star Cruiser, lamest name for a ship ever. Just don't let the Xylons destroy a Federation planet or your quadrant mutates into a terrifying red zone. That happened to me a lot in the field report. Ready? Then hop into the Star Cruiser, rev the engine, and go. And remember, if anything flies your way, blast it. Instructions. We're using the joystick for this one. Uh, here's an interesting thing. Basically, you're using the, joyst- the, the left joystick, right? It's a one-player game. You plug the joystick in, you use it. But it says, for professional play, plug a second joystick into the right joystick jack to use for viewing your galactic scanner at will. I tried doing this in the field report. Um, it just mostly confused me. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the game or me or some combination thereof. Press the reset on the joystick's fire button. Your Star Cruiser's instrument panel appears with your targeting computer in the center of the planet. The left side of the planet shows how many fighters you have left. The right side shows your fuel level. Press, I ran out of fuel a lot in this game. Press the joystick fire button to launch your Star Cruiser into hyperspace and begin the game. A few moments after you launch your Star Cruiser, the galactic scanner appears, detailing one of the 16 quadrants in the galaxy. The quadrant's 48 sectors can be occupied by Xylons, Xylon planets, corridors, wormholes, star clusters, or Federation planets. The quadrant has four exits, one on each side, leading to other quadrants. A flashing X shows your sector position. Move the joystick handle left, right, forward, or back to move the Star Cruiser to an occupied sector in the quadrant. Sectors with star clusters are blockades. You cannot enter them. Xylons often occupy sectors blocking an exit or threatening a Federation planet. Watch the jump value at the bottom of the scanner. When it reaches zero, Xylons may switch their sector positions. A Federation planet starts flashing when Xylons enter its sector. You must defend a planet immediately or it will be destroyed. I am super confused, everybody. The mission. Your mission is to destroy Xylons as you battle your way through galactic mazes trying to reach Solaris. You start the game with three fighters. Wait a minute. I thought they said finding Solaris was a made-up BS mission. You are actually trying to do it? I'm very confused. You score points by blasting the enemy with your photon torpedoes. When you lose a ship, a reserve ship replaces it until all your star cruisers are gone. When a reserve ship appears, press your fire button to restart game action. Push the joystick handle to the right or left to fly your star cruiser in that direction. Push the handle forward to dive or speed up when flying over a planet. Pull backward to climb or slow down over a planet. Press the joystick fire button to fire your photon torpedoes during battle. To attack a Xylon force or defend a Federation planet, move to its sector and press the fire button. You immediately hyperwarp to that sector. Watch your targeting computer during hyperwarp. It shows your star cruiser hyper-warping in and out of focus, while the number on the right of your computer displays your hyper-warp focus value. Zero is a perfect warp. Three is terrible. Move the joystick handle left or right to keep your fighter in focus. Once you land in an enemy sector, start blasting. Watch your targeting computer to find unseen Xylon ships. The number on the left of the computer tells the left-right distance from you. The number on the right tells their up-down distance. Zero means they're straight ahead, 
When your targeting computer is damaged, it will flash bright white. Use the left, right, up, down numbers to track the enemy until you can dock at a Federation planet for repairs. When you've destroyed all Xylons in a sector... Uh, oh, by the way, when you dock on a Federation planet, you literally glide your little cruiser thing into a little box. And it, if you don't hit it exactly right, it makes this thump like when you, you're learning to drive as a kid and you pulled the car too far into the garage and bumped the, uh, the wall. It's that kind of thing. Not that I would know what that was like. When you've destroyed all Xylons in a sector, the galactic scanner reappears. If you're using a second joystick, press its fire button to re-display your scanner at will, even during battle. To hyperwarp to another quadrant, move the star cruiser to a sector with an exit and press the fire button. Choose an enemy sector from that quadrant and get going. An alarm will ring when Xylons are attacking a Federation planet in your quadrant, or you'll spot the attack on your galactic scanner. The planet will flash. You've got 40 seconds to save the planet. If you fail, the whole quadrant regresses into a red zone, and joystick control is reversed. Watch it. Okay, that was what was going on. So every once in a while, uh, yeah, you would push your joystick to the left, and your, but your ship would go to the right, and vice versa, and I was very confused. When your fuel gets critically low, another alarm buzzes. Hyperwarp to a Federation planet as soon as you can for refueling. Dock in a docking bay by flying into it to refuel and repairing damage to your star cruiser. If you run out of fuel, your star cruiser explodes. Battle gets increasingly fast and furious, shout out to The Rock and Vin Diesel, as the game goes on. You must continue to search for Solaris while destroying all enemy ships. This week's episode sponsored by Fast and Furious, movie number 47, coming this summer. You'll know Solaris when you find it. It's the only blinking planet in the galaxy. By which I, I assume they don't mean that they're trying not to curse. Like, it's the only blinking planet. I think they mean it is literally blinking, which should concern, I don't know, climate scientists maybe? Something about the ozone layer and making the planet blink? I don't know. The game ends when all your ships are destroyed or you reach Solaris. Press reset, then the fire button to play again. So apparently it doesn't really end. You just relive everything over and over again like the Dark, the dark Tower or something. Go now, there are other worlds than these. Has anyone seen the Dark Tower movie yet? I have not, but I really want to. I like the books. Send me your thoughts. Anyway... Uh, strategy. Map your progress. It will help you find Solaris more quickly. Try to keep your star cruiser in focus during hyperwarp. The better job you do at focusing, the less fuel you waste. When you arrive in the enemy sector, you'll also be closer to the Xylon fleet. Destroy the enemy closest to Federation planets first. Save fuel in enemy sector by blasting at neutral planets, which seems kind of mean, only to avoid colliding with them. Don't shoot your docking bays or you'll turn the quadrant into a red zone. Uh, and then we get a glossary of sorts that tells us with all the little icons on the screen. Mean, here, these are the ones I'm talking about. Can you see in the back? Okay, good. I won't go through all this because you can't obviously see what I'm looking at, but you've got Solaris, Federation Planets, Space Cadets, Docking Bays, Wormholes, Xylon Planets, Corridors, Blockaders, Attack Groups, Kogalen, Star Pirates, Cobra Ships, Flagships, Distractors, Mechanoids, Mechanoids? Mechanoids uh, were from a first Doctor, Doctor Who story. Mechanoids are the thing in this game. Gliders, raiders, and targeters, which I'm not sure is a word, but all right. Point values. The lowest point value is 20 points uh, for uh, blasting a distractor. You get 8,000 points either for rescuing all the cadets on a Xylon planet or making it through a corridor. And it's a huge jump. 
before 8,000, the, the highest tier of points is 500 points for getting a flagship. So you get a crap ton of points if you uh, save all the cadets or get through that corridor. When you rescue all space cadets on a Xylon planet, you earn an extra star cruiser and blow up the planet. You blow up another Xylon planet when you make it safely through a corridor. And that is how you play Star Cruiser. Sorry. What the hell is this game? Solaris. That is how you play Solaris. Are you confused yet? Yeah, me too. And you know who can blame for that? Doug Neubauer. He programmed the game uh, that was released by Atari in 1986. He owns the copyright to the game, according to Wikipedia, and the Solaris trademark. Solaris is a sequel, and in many ways, superior to Neubauer's Star Raiders. I didn't know, until I read this just now, that it was a direct sequel, but you can definitely tell, of course, it's almost the same damn game. Superior? I don't know. This person writing this Wikipedia article uh, opines that Solaris has some of the best graphics on the Atari 2600. Uh, I don't know that I would argue with that necessarily. They are pretty darn good graphics. Both games feature an enemy race known as Xylons. Solaris was at one point going to be based on The Last Starfighter, while the Atari 8-bit version of The Last Starfighter was renamed Star Raiders 2, which in itself is pretty damn confusing. A reviewer on OneMoreCastle.com kicks off his review by saying, From the first time I ever played Solaris for the Atari 2600 to today, I've always believed that it is the best game ever made for that system. Here's why. Um, he notes a lot of people may not be familiar with Solaris because it came out in July of 86, meaning a bunch of people had already moved on to the NES. He says well, he didn't get an NES until 1989, so he was still playing Atari in 86. Why would anyone bother to make a game for a dying console? Uh, the reviewer says, Apparently while Neubauer doesn't know why Atari bothered releasing more games for the 2600, he was working only a few miles away from Atari's headquarters at the time, so it looks like he just figured, why not? He had pitched the game years earlier, and Atari wanted it to be called The Last Starfighter, as I, I, I noted earlier. But one week after they flew him down for a screening of the movie, Jack Tramiel bought the company and pretty much laid everyone off. To Neubauer, it looked like the end for Atari and video games. Yet two years later, he gets a call, and just like that, Atari bought the game we now know as Solaris. Interesting side note, he says, if you take a look at Solaris's manual, you may get the impression that it's, well, crummy. There's a reason for this. As Neubauer explains, he submitted his notes on the game using the desktop publishing program the company he was currently working was basically pioneering. So these notes, along with his crude little drawings, were used practically un unaltered for the manual when all he had meant them to be were simply notes. I don't think the drawings are actually that bad, and the manual for what it is is fine. Uh, it's certainly in keeping with every other Atari manual I've read. The reviewer says the gameplay is massive, you know, way beyond anything like Pitfall and Adventure. Your jaw might drop when you watch this game. I, and I said before, and I say in the field report, it is a damn good looking game. He kind of goes through some of the gameplay, and he thinks that overall the controls are great. You can even control your speed on the planetary levels, while the levels and enemies are ridiculously varied, meaning you won't get bored during doing the same thing over and over again. That is true, actually, and that is a knock, a legitimate knock on a lot of Atari games. The appeal of Atari games, of course, especially in the modern era of really complex video games, is you can just pick up a joystick or a paddle, depending on what game you're playing, and just start playing. You don't, you often don't really need the manual. This game, however, and Star Raiders, sorry, Star Raiders, which in my head is how you have to say it, are way more complex. Whether that's a good thing or not, I guess, is uh, another thing. But he thinks the controls are great. Uh, I don't necessarily agree. He really likes the graphics, better than some NES games, in his opinion. There's no music in Solaris. But there's certainly no silence either, that's for dang sure. 
Uh, in conclusion, I could go on and on about how great he thinks the game is. And trust me, I have on Twitter and too many people's faces. I don't know this reviewer at all, but I picture him, or her, wandering around, poking his head around the, cub- the, the cubicle next to him at work and saying, Hey, hey, have you played Solaris? It's great. You know, that kind of thing. Rebecca Pinkowski, on September 6, 2005, published a post on the Atari Times called Solaris, Lost Planet, Found Happiness. She says, At this point, I'd like to list my five favorite Atari games. Raiders of Lost Ark. She adds in parentheses, I'm serious. Ball Blazer, Adventure, Hero, and the number one all-time fave, Solaris. She started playing this around 1990. It was the last Atari game her family ever acquired. Doesn't really know where she got it, but it, somehow it came into her possession. Even as a young thing, I always had a thing for space, ad- space adventure, be Josie and the Pussycats in Outer Space or Battlestar Galactica. I could sit and play Vanguard, Defender, Galaga, or Galaga, Yars Revenge, or any other space shooter for hours. But once I finally read the manual and played the game itself, I was simultaneously hooked and annoyed that I had been depriving myself of the pleasure of warping through space, blasting the daylights out of his flagships. Uh, Kogale and Star Pirates, cover ships, and all sorts of other things. Um, she also really likes the graphics, uh, notes that there's no music, but a crap ton of other sounds. Despite the complexity and scope of the game, it's fun, and that makes it a winner in my book. Once again, I think the scope and complexity and the controls make it less fun uh, as Atari games go. The one complaint she has is that certain wormholes will shunt you straight into a corner blocked in by star clusters, and once you pass through certain sectors containing a planet, the game won't let you back out the way you came. There's nothing like playing a game for hours, only to find yourself stuck with no way out. Or the only way out being to destroy a friendly planet, along with all your possible rest stops in that quadrant. Don't have to tell me, girlfriend. That's totally the experience I had this morning. Anyway, she thinks the controls are pretty responsive for the most part. Everything moves pretty easy. The only time the control is a real problem is when a Federation planet is destroyed, uh, either by the Xylons or if you shoot a docking bay. The quadrant becomes a red zone when the controls are reversed. This situation is best faced with the 7800 Proline joystick. Both fire buttons function the same way, so if you simply hold it upside down, you can almost maneuver normally. Hmm, that's an interesting idea. Perhaps the best way to describe how I feel about this game is that I've never won it, but I still love it. And I will say that that is kind of what you want in a game, right? You want it, you don't want it to be too easy, but you don't want it to be so hard that it's off-putting. You want it to make you come back for more, but not just put the game away. Uh, I kind of feel like I'm at a point where I don't like this. The, I, I like the look of this game. I like what the game is. I just I don't like the controls. Just my personal preference. Of course, we would be remiss if we didn't also mention that this is not the only Solaris in the world. Solaris is also a 2002 American science fiction drama written and directed by Steven Soderbergh, produced by James Cameron and John Landau, and starring George Clooney and Natasha McElhone, based on... Wait for it. No, I'm just kidding. It's actually based on a 1961 science fiction novel, also called Solaris, written by Stanislaw Lem. There was a 1972 film, Solaris which was itself preceded by a 1968 Soviet TV film, and all of that was based on the novel as well. And then 2002 was the Clooney remake. The film is set almost entirely on a space station orbiting the planet Solaris, adding flashbacks to the previous experiences of the main characters on Earth. Clooney's character struggles with the questions of Solaris' motivation, his beliefs and memories, and reconciling what was lost with an opportunity for a second chance. So, in other words, this Solaris, nothing to do with 
1986 Atari game. But you know what? It was a chance to mention George Clooney. So for all you Clooney fans, there you go. Uh, if you're bored by what I'm saying to you, you can just sit there and imagine yourself, you know, having lunch with George Clooney or whatever else tickles your fancy. So after the break, Solar Us? No, we say. Solar You. Okay, now it's time to do the field report. We have a special guest today on the show, Mr. George Clooney, famous actor, star of the movie Solaris. George, we're really happy to have you here today. Wait, wait, where'd George go? George? Wait, what? No, we told him the game was called Solaris, and the movie he was in was called Solaris, so it would be fun to have him. What? He, he left? No, George, come back, George. Oh, well, we still got Brad Pitt in the cellar. So, Solaris is big and noisy, and going through the star field with the planets flying at you just really makes me think of Third Rock from the Sun. I keep expecting George Lithgow, John Lithgow, to jump out at me. You got a hyperwarp, and you got this scanner, and I just picked up some refugees, so that's good, I guess. I don't know how I got to this planet. Now I'm refueling, I guess. Alright. And I got this two-joystick thing going to try and look at the scanner with the other one, but that just seems to randomly work. This is Star Raiders all over again, and I'm not sure how I feel about that. Pick this more refugees because I'm on a planet again for reasons. I don't know. Now I'm back to the scanner for some reason. I'm just shooting because I want something to do. Now I hyperwarped again. I don't know why. It's a very cool looking game. Uh, it's clearly, uh, you know, the end times for Atari. The other the later period, 86, where uh, things were starting to wind down, but they uh, clearly had learned how to do really, really impressive looking games. So, you know, big props for that. Maybe if I was a 10 year old kid with nothing but time to sit here and figure out how to master this game, okay, now I got something to shoot because he just shot me. Yes, I have shields. No, I'm back to the, no, I didn't want to look at the little map right there. I want to shoot. No, I'm taking off again. What the Jellyfish. What the heck? Where did they come from? 
Phew. I'm warping out of here. Or something. I'm low on fuel? Or was that telling me there was an attack coming? Hold still so I can shoot you. Uh oh. Again, I have no problem with the way this game looks. I like the uh, uh, the burn on the, the you know when you fire your thrusters or whatever on your rocket, the little afterburn that shoots out from your uh, star cruiser. Although I'm not sure that that's scientifically accurate. I don't know that it would actually burn like that in space, but it looks cool. enough of that. You get the idea. Uh, back to you in the somewhat less noisy studio. So here's the thing about Solaris. I've already kind of said what I think about Solaris. It's a damn good looking game. I am not surprised to learn that it is a sequel to Star Raiders because I have the same complaint about both games. Atari was striving for some sort of complex gameplay that the equipment and the programming just weren't up to yet. It is really hard to play this game, I think, the way that they intend for you to play it. Maybe if I had hours and hours to spend with it, I would get into a groove where I could do it, but I don't have that kind of time. I am more likely to pick up Pitfall or River Raid or Galaga, Galaga, Galaxian, something where I can pick up a joystick, plug in a controller, or plug in a cartridge, and just go to town. Because that's what I want from my Atari experience. If I want to do something with complex, you know, moving from screen to screen and maps and all of that, you know, I'll, I'll get out the uh, the PlayStation. Or the, what do I have? I don't have a PlayStation. I do have a PlayStation. I have a PlayStation 2. I'll get out the Xbox, though. That's what's plugged in the other room with some of the more current games. You know, I'll get one of those out and have a good time playing that. So I'm not giving Solaris a bad review. I'm just saying it's, it's probably not for me. Plus, I think... You know, we're given some uh, semblance of a story, right? The Zylons are invading. But what we don't get is much of the, you know, sort of Federation perspective on on what's happening. Sort of the, the, the behind-the-scenes maneuvering that's that's in play to, to launch this mission to find Solaris, which is a fake mission but actually isn't. I'm so confused about that. And how come it doesn't work necessarily, right? You're in there, you know, bumbling around in your star cruiser blasting your own planets occasionally what's up with that why would they recruit you to be the hero for the federation well what if it turns out that things didn't quite go as planned as the xylon bombs burst around the federation headquarters the atarian federation that is not the star trek federation we want to make that very clear for legal reasons 
a desperate plan is formed. The Federation needs its greatest hero to find the lost planet of Solaris and rescue the pioneers, though one wonders if the planet is lost? How did the pioneers find it, and how does the Federation know that they're there? Anyway, no time for logic. This is war. Once Solaris is found, the invasion can be repelled. Somehow. So, an urgent email is drafted. Ironically, the bravest, smartest hero this Federation has ever known has a pathological fear of the telephone. Her parents were killed in a freak rollover minutes incident. The Federation president's quivering tentacle slams down on send, and the remaining survivors at headquarters breathe a little easier, knowing that help is coming. Only, the thing is, the invasion made proofreading emails a low priority. The email address was a little off, and instead of going to Atarex, the Federation's greatest warrior, it went to some schlub on Earth holding his joystick. And Atarex? She just wants the handle on her laser battle axe recharged. You know that feeling when you take a day off in the middle of the week, uh, not like to go away on vacation or another stint in rehab or something, but just to kind of hang out at home? Feels weird, doesn't it? Now imagine that you're the universe's greatest hero. The laser battle axe recharging kiosk was swamped. Where's the fire? Atarix asked. You know, the laser fire. Then she helpfully laughed at her own joke. This place is crazy. What gives? The sweaty clerk behind the counter rolled his eyes and grinned. Right, search me. Can't imagine why anyone needs to arm up today. Then he laughed a weary, slightly maniacal laugh. At the dry cleaner, the conveyor belt thingy spewed forth row after row of crisp, freshly pressed Federation flight suits. Was the Federation ramping up for some sort of battle? Couldn't be. Atarix checked her phone again. Nope, still no emails. Once again, she had a fleeting thought that she should have paid for unlimited texting. But great as the Federation was, they were a little stingy with the credits. The dental hygienist who laser-blasted Atarix's teeth at her semi-annual cleaning was not at all chatty. She seemed pensive and nervous. She kept demanding, What are you doing here, worrying about your stupid bicuspids? Atarix tried to say, Isn't that why I'm here? It'd be weird if I came to the dentist for a mammogram. But with the hygienist's hand in her mouth, it came out more garbled than a Venusian sloth whistler on a night of harmonic convergence. Finally, it was when Atarix took her star cruiser in for its 180,000 light-year tune-up, and the tech asked if she wanted the Cobra Crippler upgrade with the Star Pirate Vanquisher on her galactic scanner that she finally had to ask, Why would I need all that? I just came in for a space oil change. Before the tech could respond, another star cruiser crashed into the parking lot right across from the space proctologist. Your asteroids are our business. And just behind the astro subs, our sandwiches are out of this world and in theirs because we believe in galactic domination. A middle-aged male doofus in a t-shirt stamped Atari staggered out, shook his head, shrugged, and climbed into another star cruiser that suddenly glided in front of him, emblazoned with the call sign CX-40. He climbed back in and took off while slamming an energy drink. What the... Atarix muttered. The rest of the question drowned out by the roar of the Federation's Alpha Squadron, with the CX-40 leading the way. Atarix was sure she could hear that dork with the shirt scream, Listen to Atari Bites! Whatever that meant before he crashed again and just as quickly climbed into yet another CX-40, blasting Xylons one after another. Xylons! Now Atarix understood. They started an invasion, she said, and I wasn't invited to the party. She tossed some credits on the tech's counter, snatched up her free Qbert-shaped cruiser air freshener, and ran to her cruiser, with which she quickly dispatched the invading forces. 
When the battle was over, Atarix looked through the wreckage for the CX-40. Where was this brave, if scruffy, undisciplined, and slightly body-odorish hero who filled in for her? She never found the mysterious Federation benefactor, but she was sure, off in the distance, she could hear an otherworldly sound. And that's our show. My thanks to Kevin McLeod at Incomptech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Take a Chance, and Pinball Spring. You can find Atari Bytes on many podcatchers, you know that by now, but you should make a point of going to iTunes to save the definitely distinct from the trademark Star Trek Federation by leaving a review. Then, go tell some friends. You can also support the show financially, and please consider doing so, uh, so that we can upgrade our equipment and games and so forth at the Atari Bytes Patreon page, or by picking up Atari Bytes merchandise at Zazzle.com. Links to all of that in the show notes. Our website is ataribytes.libson.com. You can email the show at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. You can like the Atari Bytes Facebook page. You can follow the show on Twitter at Atari Bytes, or follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. And don't forget to check out my other show, It's a Podcast, Charlie Brown, for all your Peanuts-related needs. New episodes drop on the 15th of every month. Next time on Atari Bytes, Trick Shot. So until next time, go play some old games. They've missed you. Thank you.